We are. We are. We are cultivate. 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 We are cultivate. Hello and welcome to Yield Crime, where we discuss the funny, strange, and obscure crimes of yesteryear. I'm your host, Lindsay Valenti, and with me is my sister and co-host, Maddie Stangle. Hello. Hi. How's it going? It's going. Yeah. It's been a week. It has. It has been a week. A week, yes. So, as promised, Mm. this week we are going to be discussing the Oneida community. Oh, okay. It's a big one. Yeah. I was, I was going to wait a while and I was like, no, no, I'm going to strike while the iron is hot. Like, there you go. Okay. It's too good. So. All right. Information was pulled from the following sources. A 2022 BBC video by Maria Badia, 2021 Blue Ocean Thinking article by Michael Olenek, 2020 Connecticut History article by Edward T. Howe, 2019 JSTOR Daily article by Matthew Wills, 2017 Social Welfare History Project article, 2016 Collector's Weekly article by Lisa Hicks, 2007 The New York Times article by Beth Quinn Barnard, Atlas Obscura, Britannica, Find a Grave, New York History article by Randall Hillebrand, Oneida Community Mansion House, Syracuse University Library Department of Special Collections, and three Wikipedia links. Nice. And links to all of these articles will be included in the show notes. If you want a playlist of all our episodes on YouTube, click the link in our show notes or in our link tree and subscribe today for not only a list of our full catalog, but a separate list as well, just of our Can You Crack the Cramp Word segments. And before we get too deep, I do want to clarify that what we're discussing today is the utopian cult that was Oneida, not to be confused with the Oneida people, who are a Native American tribe and First Nations band. Yeah, that's a really good distinction. It's a Mm -hmm. really good point to clarify. (laughs) Yep. Something completely different. Not the same. Although the community was built on Oneida people's land. But yeah. It's a whole separate theme yeah. of year. Yeah, just like entirely problematic. Yeah. Now, if you're thinking of the Oneida Silverware and Dishes Company, this is the same, but not in the way you might think. What? So let's dive into it. Oh my God. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I mean, that kind of checks out. Like, don't, don't most cults have like really weird pocket industries, like the Sleepy Time Tea, too? Mm hmm. And like the the mother god with the colloidal silver thing, like they all have their own yep. weird pyramid scheme. They've got their shtick. Yeah. Or like the peanut butter one. The MLMs. <laughs> yeah. During our episode about Charles Julius Guiteau, aka the guy that assassinated President James Garfield, mm-hmm. we briefly touched on the fact that he was at one time a failed member of the Oneida community. Mm-hmm. The community that would go on to become known as Oneida was started by a man named John Humphrey Noyes. 
John was born in Brattleboro, Vermont on September 3, 1811, to parents John and Polly Hayes Noyes. He was one of nine children. Damn. And was fourth in the pecking order. Okay. So, middle kid. His siblings included, from eldest to youngest, Mary Jane, born 1805, Joanna in 1807, Elizabeth, born 1809, George Washington, mm. born in 1813, Horatio in 1815. Okay, that's a pivot. Yeah. Harriet in 1817, Charlotte in 1819, and George Washington II in 1883. The first George passed away the same year that the second was born, which is likely why he was named the same thing. I hate I still I, I don't hate, like. I hate that. Yeah. Like, yeah, oh, I don't like it. It's the replacement. Like, what? Yeah. I don't I'm I'm not a fan. Yeah, that's a weird coping skit mechanism. I don't know. I don't know. Like I I, I can't judge cuz I haven't experienced that thankfully, but I don't know if I would do the same. Can't say I would. And I mean, I know it's something that's happened throughout history. Like we've covered cases where people have named their child, like their successive children, the names of previous deceased children, Mm -hmm. but never like the same year. You know what I mean? Like, like my baby, like my baby died two months before the new one was born. So I'm just going to name my new one the same name as the old one. Like, yeah, it just seems a little too, uh, too soon. That's just that's yeah. just my thought. It, it there there seems to be a weird. It's really towing the line of like yeah. appropriateness. I guess I don't know. Again, yeah. who who am I to judge? But right. it just I felt like it needed to be noted why because mm-hmm. it was very strange. A little icky. Yeah, a little icky. John's father worked a variety of positions, such as a minister a businessman, a teacher, and he was also a member of the U.S. House of Representatives. So they're fairly well-to-do family. That's really funny that, like, he had all of those jobs. Kind of makes you think about people in those positions and how a certain type of person can very easily go from one to the next. Yeah. Selling religion, selling government (laughs) ideals. Mm-hmm. Selling things. <laughs> yeah. All of the traits. Yeah. John's mother, Polly, who was 16 years younger than her husband, Ooh. was a deeply religious woman and very strong-willed. She was the disciplinarian. I bet she had to. Like, it kind of... With nine kids? Yeah. It makes sense. Nine kids and your husband's likely gone all the time? Doing the Lord's work, doing... The government's work or big business's work? Business. <laughs> Not much is known about his early life, but in the fall of 1831, the age of 20, he decided that upon his graduation from Dartmouth College, he would enroll at Andover Theological Seminary instead of going to study law. Hmm. This change was inspired by his religious conversion based on the works of Charles Grandison Finney, who was a leader of the Second Great Awakening which I'll go into a little bit more. Mm. The second great awakening. I know what the first was. When Christ came the first time. Duh. The first awakening was just (laughs) us waking up, us being not amoebas anymore. I don't know. Yeah. Surprise. (laughs) Surprise, we got legs. (laughs) 
In the fall of 1832, John started his first year at Yale Theological Seminary, utilizing the time that he wasn't devoting to Bible study to political activism, such as when he helped organize one of the first anti-slavery societies in the U.S. in New Haven, Connecticut, which is pretty cool. Okay. All right. That's not a typical... Well, no, I shouldn't say that. There are a lot of religious groups that are not close-minded. Mm-hmm. You go, Glen Coco. <laughs> <laughs> you might change your mind. But oh, no. uh, in that instance, <laughs> you go, you go. In his second year at Yale, John determined that Christ's second coming had already occurred in 70 AD, oh. which meant that, quote, mankind was now living in a new age, end quote. Mm. This premise falls within the perfectionist movement, a.k.a. the Second Great Awakening. He believed in living as the original apostles, living free of sin in a new Garden of Eden. So he's going to school for like seminary school, right? Mm -hmm. He was supposed to get ordained. And when he came up with this theory, they were like, yeah, no, you're a heretic. So they kicked him out. So yeah. there were some places where they said he was he was ordained as a preacher and, a, and half said he wasn't. He wasn't. He probably said he was. He played it off like he was, but he was not officially ordained in anything. Got it. So they were like, yeah, weirdo, get out. <laughs> yep. Gross. We don't like that. Go. Because <laughs> at this point. America is still mainly like Protestant. Like that's yeah. like the major sect of Christianity that's kind of Yeah, well, Protestant or especially in New England. Yeah, like they still probably had a lot of puritanical views too. Yep, they still had a lot of like Quakers and things mm-hmm. like that, but like really conservative, intense forms of Christianity. In 1834, John started to develop what would go on to become the founding principles of the Oneida community. He spent the next three years canvassing New England and New York to look for new converts with little to no success. What? (laughs) I know, right? Crazy. In 1837, he started publishing works in a new periodical titled Battle Axe. His articles included a denunciation of the institution of marriage. Part of a personal letter to a friend was also published anonymously, in which John stated that he felt he was God's agent on earth, and another article outlining his beliefs on sexual relationships in the spiritual world. So, sex with ghosts? Sex with God? All of it? (laughs) Kind of like... Sex bringing you closer to God. Got it. Okay. Yeah. Invite him in. Yeah. (laughs) Gross. Leaving room for Jesus so he can join. (laughs) Who doesn't love a holy trinity, am I right? I guess. He did. He really (laughs) liked it. He liked it a lot. John married Harriet Ann Holton in Chesterfield, New Hampshire on June 28, 1838. He was 27 and she was 30. Their union came about following the publication of some of his writings, which intrigued Harriet enough that she started to support him financially, and their partnership later became a more traditional one. Hmm. So at the time that they got married, he was already kind of starting to form these 
special views around marriage, which I will go into a little bit right. in just a, a second. But essentially, he was like, you and I are married kind of like on paper only. Our relationship is more than that. So I'm going to leave it right there. Gross. Yeah. He's like, I'm going to use you for your money. And also, yeah. we'll say I love you. We'll, we'll, we'll get there. The pair had five children together within the first six years of their marriage, but only one of these children survived, his oh. son Theodore, who was born in 1841. The rest had been born premature and didn't live past infancy. That's too bad. These losses were what sparked John's interest in studying sexual intercourse further. In a quote from Collectors Weekly from author Ellen Wayland Smith, quote, at the end of her five-year period of back-to-back -back pregnancies, Harriet was just ragged emotionally and physically. Noise thought enough is enough. This is brutal. If a woman can't control her reproduction, she doesn't have time for anything else. She doesn't have time to develop herself as a spiritual or an intellectual person. It's amazing that the Oneidans understood that and gave that freedom to the women, end quote. Hmm. So keep that in mind. Mm -hmm. So during this time, over the course of these five, six years that they're in their marriage, John had coordinated the marriages of two of his sisters to two of his closest followers, mm. John L. Skinner and John R. Miller. His little lackeys, Skinner and Miller. Cool. His younger brother, George, also became a member of the sect, along with a man named George Cragen. Now, John and some of his disciples unofficially formed the group of quote-unquote Bible communists. Bible communists? Okay. In Putney, Vermont in 1841. At this point, there were around 37 members who lived in three houses, worshipped in a small chapel, and owned and operated a store to make a living. Mm. And they also ran two farms. So they were kind of trying to be as self-reliant as possible yeah. with like the farming aspect, but then also make money by selling goods. Mm -hmm. That was their bridge to the outside world. Yes. Essentially. During this time, John had been amassing followers to his beliefs. And in May, 1846, he developed a romantic interest in the wife of one of his earliest converts, George Cragen. Mm. He was able to convince the couple that they should enter into a complex marriage with him and his wife so that they could all have sex with one another. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Casual. Just two buds sharing wives. Mm-hmm. Later that year, both couples moved into a home. It was at this time that the practice of simple or monogamous marriages was abandoned and the concept of complex marriages was introduced to the group at large. Interesting that they kept it, they still kept it as a marriage. Mm -hmm. You know. I'll go through all the tenets in just a minute. Mm. In 1847, revivalism was starting to gain traction in Christianity, and John shared that Christ had already returned and was now part of his group in Putney. Hmm. This, and the practice of complex marriage, were just a couple of the reasons that John and his group were forced out of Putney before they moved to New York. Mm -hmm. And the little matter of John being arrested for adultery, which landed him in jail. Yeah, still definitely not legal currently. 
Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yep. Did his buddy George get arrested too, or just him? I think it was just John. That, that's I didn't funny. see anything about George. I, I saw that it was just John. I wonder if George was the one that, like, told. <laughs> he was able to post bail. And in 1848, the Oneida community was officially founded in Oneida, New York, with just 87 members, 45 of which were from the original Putney commune. Wow. So that's a lot. Yeah. So not all of the people who were in the Putney commune continued on to Oneida. That makes sense. The ones that were like, we're not cool with complex marriage. They were like, we're out. Well, I, I think too him being arrested would have thinned the herd a little bit too. The group earned their living wages via farming and logging on 40 acres of partially cleared land. Not long into its formation, member Seymour Newhouse provided the commune with a steel animal trap that he had invented, which allowed them to manufacture and sell Oneida traps, which would go on to be considered one of the best you could purchase in the country. Damn. Further money-making endeavors included the making of silverware, embroidered silks, and selling canned fruit. Hmm. In fact, by January of 1857, their worth was just over $67,000, or $2.4 million today. Oh my god. And that's like just under a decade later. That's insane. Like, yeah, he really, he's got a good group there. Mm-hmm. If if that's the kind of money that they're bringing in, because obviously he's yep. not coming up with all those ideas himself. Wow. The community ran like a well-oiled machine divided into 48 departments that monitored a variety of activities at Oneida, all of which were supervised by 21 different committees. These included, quote, central board and finance committees and various clerical offices, committees to receive visitors for the trap department, the machine shop, blacksmithing, building department, shoe shop, bag department, printing office, kitchen, farm and dairy, fruit and garden, teaming, stables, silk department, beekeepers, soap and vinegar, poultry keeper, compost manager, commissioner of highways, steward, greenhouse, grist mill, and schools. End quote. Damn. Like, talk about micromanaging. Yeah, like, they had they had a lot of stuff going on. Yeah. I mean, like, a lot of it's inevitable, depending on how big the yeah. community is. But still, like, damn, that's a lot of... Yeah. It's a lot of oversight. Men weren't the only ones expected to work, either. Women would trim their hair short out of a sense of practicality. Because this was in the Victorian era when women had those really long, super long hair... That they would put in those elaborate like updos, so it was a big deal that they like chopped their hair off short. Yeah, because that it's not close to the time when that would have been in vogue. Yeah, it would have been a while yet like, before what, that became another forty years. Generally, they often wore pants or trousers or short skirted tunics to be able to work as the men did. That's really progressive. This is really weird. Like, the way that they're progressive is very strange. Women were able to enjoy way more rights than other women during this period in history. Yeah. In addition to being able to work in the same industries as men, 
they were expected to get an education. They had the right to accept or reject sexual partners. Mm -hmm. They wore pants. Mm -hmm. They were able to ditch their corsets and enjoy sex. So ideal, like this would have been really cool as a woman. Mm -hmm. Uh, Well, at least on paper. There was also no expectation to just be baby factories, which was refreshing. Yeah, especially if you were like raised in a home or a community where you thought that that's that's it, that's what it was, that's what your life was going to be. And some easy-talking people that look really successful and happy tell you otherwise. As I kind of alluded to earlier, the community practiced communalism, mm-hmm. a.k.a. shared property and possessions. Everyone worked four to six hours a day, and no one accumulated their own personal possessions. Even him? Even noise? Even him. Nice. Even him. Okay. Oneida members also practiced complex marriage, which was a system of free love in which any member was free to have sex with any other member of the group as long as the other person consented. And consent. We love it. Mm -hmm. Love to see it. A third party, who was usually an older female member of the community, would control the negotiations for interviews, quote-unquote, or sex. That's really funny. And the reason that complex marriage was a thing is that according to their perfectionist ideals, quote, the liquid electricity of Jesus Christ's spirit flowed through words and touch, and that a chain of sexual intercourse would create a spiritual battery so charged with God's energy that the community would transcend into immortality creating heaven on earth, end quote. Okay. (laughs) Looking at my options as a woman during that time doesn't seem too bad right now. Yeah. In comparison to the general state. And this is also the time when like mesmerism started to be a thing. Mm -hmm. So like that's how kind of like the weird energy aspect kind of comes into play. Yep. And this was right kind of when spiritualism is active too. Yep. Just kind of exploring that idea a little more. And the reason for the go-between was so that a woman could feel comfortable saying no without feeling embarrassed or pressured into agreeing. That's amazing. Mm -hmm. That's really cool. John himself, if you recall, was in a relationship with his wife, which was frowned upon. But given that he was the leader of the sect, it's kind of hard to yell at him. Mm -hmm. Quote, The new commandment is that we love one another, not by pairs, as in the world, but en masse, end quote, is what he said, is what he kind of decreed. Yeah. So even though on paper he was still married to Harriet, he did participate in complex marriage, and she also did because she was on board with it. Mm -hmm. Well, and I think they could probably very easily convince their followers, too, that their marriage was more for outward facing to like mm-hmm. be able to seamlessly integrate into normal society yep so i don't know why it's not in my notes because i definitely had it in there at one point so essentially they believed that all of the men were married to all of the women so it wouldn't it didn't matter yeah who you ended up hooking up with you were all one yeah everyone was available to everyone if the consent was there. Yes. But there was that initial of you have access. 
nobody's kind of yep. off the table initially until they tell you no. <laughs> yep. Until they say no. <laughs> However, it wasn't all willy-nilly sexcapades. Yeah. Sexual relations were very strictly regulated, and even the act of conceiving children was regulated as well. That makes sense, because it could get messy really fast. Women of childbearing age who were interested in doing such were carefully chosen and paired with men that John and others felt would create an ideal child. Ooh, a little airy in there. Uh-oh. Children born in the sect were raised by the members as a whole, not just in separate families. Yeah. The act of child-rearing was done by both men and women. I think that would probably probably be pretty difficult to start considering mm -hmm. well especially like I mean there's a reason why you feel more connected to your your children that you birth like there's a reason why we have those mm -hmm. chemicals in our brains but mm -hmm. it's kind of cool that they tried to keep it mm -hmm. to a community in a quote about the united community regarding children quote infants remained with their mothers for the first year or more Okay. Children between the ages of two and approximately 12 lived in a separate building and were cared for by nurses and teachers in the children's department. The children became the property of the whole community. Much as material property was held in common, so too were the children cared for and loved by all. As a general principle, they felt that a child is best brought up in an open community element and not in a closed circle of family relatives, end quote. You have me until until you start talking about property. That's a that's a choice word to mm -hmm. talk about children and yeah. people. The eugenics experiment yeah. started in 1869 with Terza Miller, one of the highest spiritual members of the group, who, luckily for John, was also one of the most sought after and lusty members of the female sex. Convenient. Apparently, she kept a journal chronicling her exploits, of which there were many. Nice. In a quote from Collectors Weekly, quote, Unlike other eugenicists that followed, Noyes wasn't interested in eliminating certain races. It helped that everyone in the United community was white. Right. Their physical features, diseases, or deformity. Noyes wanted to breed his followers based on their moral natures hoping the holiest among them would give birth to a race of immortals, which he called Stirpicults, hastening Christ's kingdom, end quote. Interesting pivot. Mm -hmm. I don't know if you can birth an immortal, but uh, sure, go ahead and try. I mean... Spoiler alert, you can't. <laughs> I mean, we still can't. <laughs> yeah. No amount of eugenics can do that yet. No, 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 no. Yep. Using stripiculture, as John put it, mm -hmm. his eugenics experiment took place between 1869 and 1878. 100 men and women took part in the program, resulting in 81 of them becoming parents to 58 children that were born during that period. Fun fact. Mm. John fathered 10 of those children and would have been between the ages of 58 and 68 at the time that they were conceived. Ew. Male continence was the practice of intercourse without ejaculation, acting as a type of birth control. <laughs> According to John, quote, a couple would engage in sexual congress without the man ever ejaculating, 
either during intercourse or after withdrawal, end quote. Right. We all know how successful that is. So masturbation was a no-no. Mm. And male continence was kind of like the thing. Like, unless you were one of those people that was actively having babies, you, di- you didn't come. So what were the murder rates? <laughs> Surprisingly, there weren't any. Okay. But, uh, okay. I don't, I don't know. Lots of- I'm sure there were a lot of wet dreams. Yeah. Lots of laundry. Yeah. Maybe a lot of physical activity. Lots of, lots of manual labor. Maybe. Yeah. So we touched on mutual criticism or cures mm. in the episode about Gito. Yeah. But in case you missed it, it's when a member of the community would sit and be subjected to the criticisms of a committee of followers or the entire community. That's just, oh God. These would generally take place during standard meetings, which they would have in the evenings, kind of after dinner, mm-hmm. with the sole intent being to weed out and eliminate character traits that were deemed undesirable. Mm. No one was immune to mutual criticism, not even John himself, although his sessions were few and far between. Yeah. These sessions were meant to shame people in order to exert social control over their actions, with the goal being that all individuals should strive for self-improvement, particularly in education and spirituality. I should note that not all of the feedback was bad. Positive criticism was also used to correct undesired behaviors. I'm sure. I'm sure they like it wasn't just like a total bash session, but there probably was a lot of bash sessions. <laughs> Especially in a community where the men can't get release. Yeah. There's probably a lot of tension. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah. Things are going to get bad again. So, one of the last practices included in the Oneida community was the act of ascending fellowship. This is when the older members of the sect would act as sexual mentors to younger members of the opposite sex. Okay. Women over 40 would mentor adolescent boys since the chances of the woman conceiving were greatly reduced. This had the added benefit of the young men viewing these women as religious role models. Mm. Okay. Along the same vein, older men would introduce young women to sex. John himself would determine who partnered with who, and would often pair up devout members of the sect with those who weren't as devout in the hopes that they would influence and convert them fully to his teachings. Yeah. Uh-huh. This is this is now sounding more like the really creepy current cults of the day. In a quote from Collectors Weekly, quote, Each boy coming of age, usually around 14, would be introduced to sex with a spiritually devout post-menopausal woman. Meanwhile, girls who'd gone through puberty, at that time, New York's age of consent was 12, would lose their virginity to Noyes himself, who was already 37 when the community settled in Oneida. Mm. Of course. Of course he would would be the one. It it gets worse. While there are no records of brother, sister, or child-parent partnering, the Oneidans accepted sexual relationships between uncles and nieces, as well as first cousins, end quote. 
that is reflective of the time, if you really think about it. Like, think of, like, royal families and how many, like, cousins and stuff. Yeah. Is it wrong and gross? Yeah. This isn't the Habsburgs. Like, this isn't, like, party at the Habsburgs. but, like, (laughs) if you're creating a community, too, that's kind of smaller and isolated, the odds of that happening are higher. I should also stress that even though John had his sister, two of his sisters and his brother also joined the sect, there has been no evidence that he enjoyed either that of his had, siblings yeah. in good. complex marriage, which is good. So incest is bad. Yeah. Incest is still not great here. Yeah. Is it an option? I guess. But is it common? Hopefully, no. <laughs> yeah. So outside of their main tenets, the group promoted lifelong learning, and they kind of bucked against traditional gender roles by having all of its members, regardless of their gender, work to sustain the commune. Got it. John wanted to foster an environment that encouraged a strong work ethic and work that was not only beneficial to the group as a whole, but also enjoyable. Yeah. I mean, that's what everybody wants, right? Yep. It's just whether or not we can achieve it is another thing. Yeah. So to sum it up, the Oneida community had 10 doctrines that they followed. And I'm just going to real quick go through all of them. So there was complex marriage, Mm -hmm. male continence, ascending Mm -hmm. fellowship, mutual criticism, confession. So the members of the community, according to John, were sinless after conversion. So no confession would, would be needed. Okay. Interesting choice. Here's some of the newer ones that I haven't mentioned. Regeneration, in the sense that Christ's death was not for the sins of man, but was the first blow to Satan, but that by believing in the death of Christ, one was released from sin because Christ destroyed the central cause of sin. So by believing, then, one is regenerated. Sure. Okay. That's quite the reach. And then there's separation. So the members did separate into a community, but their main separation was to be a sexual one. So they couldn't be with, yeah, they couldn't pair up. And then there's revelation. So John never said that he received special revelation, though he did have some twisted interpretations. Of course he did. He once wrote an article in The Berrien and emphasized the credibility of scripture and denounced those who denied the validity and relevance of scripture. Okay. Equality of the sexes. So they believed everyone's equal, like I kind of mentioned. Yeah, that's pretty cool. Yeah. Yep. I'll take that one. And then millennial kingdom. So that the millennial kingdom had been introduced in 70 AD, which is when Christ had his second coming. Right. So in 1862, due to the growing number of community members, John and the members of the commune built their 93,000 square foot or 8,600 square meter Oneida community brick mansion house. It was built in four phases between 1861 and 1878 to accommodate the 300 people who lived there. Wow. By February of 1874, they had a diverse group of people, with 131 of the members being men and 152 being women, 219 of which were adults, and 64 were children. 
just under half of the adults were also over the age of 45. So they're starting to kind of... Yeah, they're starting to age out a little bit. Yep. And that's the killer of communities. You gotta watch it. Smaller Oneida-esque communities cropped up in Wallingford, Connecticut in 1851, in Newark, New Jersey, as well as Putney, I think they tried to reclaim it, and Cambridge, Vermont. These smaller sects all shuttered their doors in 1854, except for the Wallingford branch, which continued to operate until it was forced to shutter its doors in 1878 permanently as a result of a tornado. Uh, God said no. I think at that point. Act of God, maybe? I don't know. Yeah, yeah. That God was like, stop. <laughs> <laughs> no. No. <laughs> The Wallingford branch had about 50 members prior to closing and the site for the silverware production, although it originally started by making carpet and lunch bags in 1852. It would go on to manufacture chains for steel animal traps in 1857, purchasing a factory to make silk thread and ribbons, and start producing tin plated spoons in 1877. Dang. Eventually, in order to maintain their leisurely lifestyle, the cult had to hire outside workers to work in the factories. That is really funny. Yeah, because yep. everybody's getting older. And they're like, I yep. don't want to work anymore. Dubbed hirelings. Hirelings? That's really yep. kind of cute, actually. It is, yeah. I like that. They would sometimes work up to 12 hours a day compared to the four hours that an Oneidan would. Whoa. Okay, now you're starting to get into some weird territory here. I doubt they're being compensated for the like three times. Well, they're they're getting paid, but probably they're not a whole paid, lot. But well, probably not fair wages. Yeah, because they're not a part of the group. The thread factory alone employed young girls aged ten to sixteen due to their dainty fingers. Mm-hmm. Their tiny little hands so, going so dainty, thread, threading the needles. Tiny little hands. Little baby fingers. Once construction on the Brick Mansion house had concluded, tourists would travel via railroad by the thousands to come and enjoy dinner, which was mostly vegetarian, and just 60 cents, or around $18 today, or you could pay 25 cents, or around seven seventy today, for a night of quote-unquote grand entertainment. Hmm. Mm-hmm. You're you're gonna tell me what the entertainment is, aren't you? No, I'm. It just was in quotes, so I'm. I oh, okay. don't know. Oh, I I hate that actually. I hate that we don't know what that meant. Yeah, I do know that people in the cult were very musically inclined. They were also very theatrical. Okay, so hopefully it was just like dinner and a show, and not like yeah, yeah, dance monkey dance kind of a thing. Commence the orgy. I'm. I don't think it was that. I think it was more like we're going to be having a play, or we're going to be like, singing, or or playing instruments, or something. That's kind of mm-hmm. where I assumed that meant. What I assumed that yeah. meant. Over the course of his life, John fathered many children that would survive infancy. These include Theodore Richard Noyes in 1841, so the first one that he had with his wife Harriet, Victor Noyes Cragen in 1847. Constance Bradley Noyes in 1849, Jesse C. Baker in 1858, John Humphrey Jr. in 1869, 
Pierpont Burt Noyes in 1870, Gertrude Hayes Noyes in 1871, Holton Van Velzer Noyes in 1871, Godfrey Barron Noyes in 1873, Irene Campbell Newhouse Noyes in 1873, Dorothy H.N.B. Noyes in 1876, and George Langstaff Noyes in 1879. Ten of his 12 children were a result of stirpiculture. Damn. Eugenics. Mm-hmm. Sure. <laughs> yep. If you'll recall, I mentioned in the episode about Guiteau that John had authored several works regarding the sect and its doctrine. If you're interested, you can read any of the following. The Barian, which was published in 1847. Bible Communism, published in 1848. Male Continence, published in 1848. Scientific Propagation, published in 1873. Home Talks, published in 1875. And he also wrote a compendium on utopian communities in the United States, titled History of American Socialisms, published in 1870. He was a busy, busy man. Mm-hmm. <laughs> he wasn't always playing with his dick. He had other things going on, I guess on not. Too. When did he have the time? I don't know. The community's decline started when John attempted to pass leadership of the sect over to his oldest son, Theodore, in 1876. Theodore would have been 35 at the time, while John himself was 65. The move failed due to the fact that Theodore was agnostic and also not much of a leader. After a probationary period of seven months, things became so bad that John had to return from Wallingford to take back the reins. Not good. Yeah, it was not good. Understandably, this divided the sect and a member named John Towner attempted to wrestle control of the community himself. This came on the heels of male members who had grown up in the cult returning from college. Around 10 to 12 young men had been sent to Yale in the 1860s to get degrees, and upon their return from life outside of Oneida, many of them had doubts about if John was the supposed prophet that he painted himself to be. Ruh-roh. Mm-hmm. Dun, dun, dun. These were just echoes of a general unrest, as members of the group debated on when the younger members of the group, aka the children, should be initiated into sex, and who would do the initiating. If you recall, John himself was once in charge of it, but he was now in his early 70s, and many of the adults that would typically be the ones initiating we're now faced with the reality that many of these younger members were their very own children. Yeah. This sparked debates on the broader practices of the sect as well, since the younger members of the community desired to enter into exclusive traditional marriages instead of the more open ones that the community was founded on. The final nail in the coffin came from the general public. Do you remember the Comstock law from our episode on Madame Ristel? I do, which is kind of strange because I don't remember anything ever. <laughs> <laughs> so in 1873, Congress passed the Comstock Act, which forbade mailing or selling any material that was considered obscene. 
Following this, the Supreme Court passed a ruling that banned polygamy in the Utah Territory, where the Mormons had set up shop. And that was passed in 1878. Professor John Mears of Hamilton College wrote an editorial for the New York Times on April 10, 1879, lambasting politicians for going against the polygamy of the Mormons when they turned a blind eye on the quote-unquote systemic concubinage of Oneida. Yeah, the systemic concubinage, yeah. Where he's like, so why is it not okay for them to do that, but Mm -hmm. it's okay for these people to still do this? Make it make sense. So Professor Mears called together an assembly of members outside of the sect to protest Mm. John's teachings, and this meeting was attended by 47 clergymen. That's, That's a big deal. Yeah. When John was informed by a trusted friend and advisor, Myron Kinsley, that a warrant had been issued for his arrest on charges of statutory, mm-hmm, John decided it was time to leave. Yeah, I think I think that's probably a good choice for him if he doesn't yeah. want to go back to jail. <laughs> yeah, in his 70s. Yeah, I was like, how old is he now at that point? He's pretty old. Probably not a good place to retire. No. In June of 1879, John left the United Community for the final time, fleeing to Canada, where he would live until he passed away on April 13th, 1886, at the age of 74, in Niagara Falls. Not much longer. He really didn't live that long after leaving. Mm -mm. He only lived like seven years. I always think it's funny when people go, like, flee to Canada or Mexico. Well, that's part of why they built it so close to the border mm-hmm. on the off chance. Yeah, I bet. have to skedaddle. Mm-hmm. John Noyes is currently buried at the Oneida Community Cemetery in Kenwood, New York. So they actually, the property has a cemetery on site. I bet that's really Just, spooky. Yeah, I bet it's really spooky. I don't, yeah, no thanks. That's another no spot. Like that, mm-hmm. that weird mountain top with the witches and stuff, and then in Sweden, right? So no to that, no to this. <laughs> tour seeker, I think that was. I think can, that's how you say it. Can we do like an anti-tour of places to not go? Yeah, <laughs> places you don't want to go. This is the no list. This is the hard pass list of places yep. to travel to. In August of 1879, so just two months after John fled Oneida, he requested a vote to end the practice of complex marriage to protect the women and children of the sect because he didn't want them being persecuted by the general public. It's nice that he had the forethought to do that, Mm -hmm. especially since probably the new men who were familiar with the current state of how things typically were probably didn't give a shit or wouldn't have thought to consider that. The community voted to end complex marriage at 10 p.m. on August 28, 1879. Prior to the clock striking 10, many of the members had last trysts with their favorite lovers. Teresa Miller, who I mentioned earlier, Mm -hmm. apparently had sex with three different men before the end of complex marriage went into effect. Okay. She was like, I'm going to get it. (laughs) Yeah. Like, why not? Okay. One less ride. Literally. (laughs) Quite literally, yes. (laughs) Following the end of complex marriage, many of the younger members of the sect entered in traditional marriages with one another. John's son, Pierre Pont, 
consolidated the communally owned properties and businesses, creating a joint stock company for its remaining members. Oneida Limited was formed in November of 1880, and when he took over ownership of the company in 1895, he reevaluated their business ventures and phased out all but the silverware line in 1925. Funny. Following this, the Oneida community officially dissolved in 1881. The most members they had totaled 306 in 1878. So that was a few years before they abandoned it. According to the Syracuse University Library, at the time the group disbanded, quote, their domain consisted of more than 265 acres of farmland, orchards, vineyards, gardens, and meadows. Industrial buildings included silverware, trap, and silk factories, a fruit canning house, a foundry, carriage, horse, and cow barns, a printing office, store, and numerous sheds. Their principal dwelling and working house, the mansion house, had evolved from a simple frame residence to become a complex of architecturally significant masonry structures occupying a central position atop a hill in the middle of their domain, located amidst a picturesque landscape of stately trees, formal gardens, expansive lawns, and wide vistas, the mansion house buildings were testimony to the successes of the Oneida community experiment, end quote. The Oneida community brick mansion house still exists, although it was closed to the public until 1987, at which point Pierre Pont Bert Noyes stepped down as leader. It is currently used as a multifunction building that includes a museum, dormitory housing, guest rooms, meeting and banquet spaces, as well as 35 private living apartments for members. So these are people that, like, are descendants of the original Oneida members. Nice. Today, you can reserve one of the mansion's eight guest rooms to enjoy a comfortable bedroom, simple breakfast, and a private tour of the museum. That's so crazy. (laughs) I know. According to the New York Times article I mentioned above, quote, On display in the history room is an array of the Oneida community's inventions, like the Victor Mousetrap and the Lazy Susan. Of course the Lazy Susan was a part of a cult. Right? Like, of course. Like, the weirdest things are bred from things like this. Like Mm -hmm. silverware. Like, I just, now I can't ever think of a Lazy Susan ever again. Without thinking of a sex cult. (laughs) Yeah. A progressive sex, a woman-positive sex cult. (laughs) As well as some of their peculiarities, like the knee-length dresses over pants costumes that the women wore. Other artifacts include samples of the goods manufactured in the red brick factories nearby that eventually made them rich, such as animal traps, chains, silk thread, and silverware, end quote. That's cool that they still have stuff. Mm Mm-hmm. And that they're in good enough condition like that. Mm-hmm. Fun fact, the last original member of the Oneida community, a woman named Ella Florence Underwood, passed away on June 25th, 1950, in Kenwood, New York, at the age of 101. Damn. There was a subset of the group that did pack their bags and move to Orange County in California to continue the perfectionist lifestyle. Uh, They were led by James W. Towner, but it eventually petered out. And I don't have an exact date 
on when. Yeah, I'm sure it would have been contested anyway, too. There's probably yeah. different opinions on when it ended. And say what you will about it, but Oneida ended up being the most successful and longest running utopian socialist community in the United States to date. It ran for Damn. 33 years. That is really impressive. Mm -hmm. It was probably one that everyone should have resembled for the mm -hmm. most part, but we all know that, that it didn't happen like that. Maybe in another hundred years. <laughs> Maybe. Maybe. You know, for future cults in the United States. Because you know there'll be more. There's always going to be more. And Oneida, as it stands today, continues to be one of the largest designers and producers of table and flatware in the world with products produced in Cheryl, New York. Nice. And that is the Oneida community. Amazing. It was worth the wait. It was a, it was a brief wait, but it was worth it. Yeah, it took me a lot longer to get my notes done for this one, mm -hmm. just because there was so much material to go through, and I didn't want to cut out too much. Because yeah, yeah, because there's a lot of it's really important. Mm -hmm. Like it's it's relevant enough to keep. So one of the descendants wrote a really interesting book about Oneida that I want to try and get a copy of and read it. And then maybe down the road, we can have her on and talk to her about. That would be incredible. Everything. It sounded because some of the quotes that I had in here were from her and from yeah. her book. So I, I'm going to add it to my list of things to try to get my hands on. Yeah, that'd be a wild ride. We can manifest that for later this year, or next year. Put it on our vision board. Yeah. So <laughs> Anita might make a return on Yield Crime. We'll see. Nice. If you're interested in ad-free content, consider supporting us with a one-time donation either over on Buy Me A Coffee or our Venmo page, both of which are in our link tree and in the show notes. Hey, creepy people. This is P&W Haunts and Homicides. I'm Caitlin. And I'm Cassie. Together, we explore stories of the paranormal and true crime throughout the Pacific Northwest. For each episode, we do a tarot reading to help us gain some insight on the topic as we share the facts of the case and our interpretations. You can find our episodes featuring true stories from infamous cases such as the misdeeds of Boeing, as well as lesser-known true crime cases like the murders in Tunnel 13 as well as our spooky stories from Pike Place and Raven's Manor on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and anywhere else you'd like to listen. Have, Have a, a creepy ass day. And this month's podcast plug is the PNW Haunts and Homicides podcast. Join Caitlin and Cassie as they chat about true crime, the paranormal, and all kinds of spooky shit in the Pacific Northwest. Just two normalish friends who wanted more local creepy stories so they never sleep or leave their houses again. And we will have a link to their show in the show notes. Nice. And this week's listener question comes from our friend Carrie Ann. Where would you choose to haunt if you died and had to choose one place to haunt for the rest of eternity? Oh, man. Dang, Carrie Ann. I know. You know what? I'm going to be an asshole. And I'm going to say I want to haunt a specific drop of water so that I can go with it wherever I want. I, I can be a part of a haunted lake or be in a haunted cloud, be in a haunted rainstorm and like travel that way. <laughs> oh my God. I want to travel with the water, the haunted water. 
because that's where all the spooky stuff travel. That's how all the ghosts travel anyway. It's water, right? Allegedly. Allegedly. So I'd just start in one body of water and travel that way. Make your way around. Making my yeah. way down. <laughs> maybe maybe the Missouri River to start just because it's nostalgic for me. Mm. Then go to the Mississippi. Maybe hang out in the ocean. Chill with the aliens in the Bermuda Triangle. I thought that was going to be more of a thing than it ended up being. I know. I, w- I will say the whole Bermuda Triangle thing, super disappointing. Like being a kid growing up in the 90s, it was supposed to be like this crazy super crazy thing but you don't really hear about it anymore <laughs> that and quicksand yes there there is enough tiktoks about quicksand i think i'd haunt water <laughs> bodies of water <laughs> i let's see i kind of want to to kind of go with the water theme i kind of want to haunt a lighthouse like specifically a lighthouse on one of the Great Lakes, because consider all the shipwrecks that are in the Great Lakes. I would have so many people to hang out with. Hopefully, they don't suck. But <laughs> yeah, hopefully. I mean, you like just you know knowing your odds, a couple will suck, but hopefully, yeah. the majority of them will be chill. I hope that answer is satisfactory here. Yeah. <laughs> on that note, what's something good you'd like to share? something good I'd like to share. I am going to go on a work trip in a couple of days to meet a lot of my coworkers for the first time uh, in person. I work remotely and I have met two of my colleagues in the year that I've worked there. (laughs) And now I finally get to like meet my boss and my coworkers and a couple of like the sales guys and stuff too. And Uh, I get to be in a slightly warmer climate as well, which I will really appreciate because I like, I like living in Minnesota. I could use a little less cold for a couple of days, I think. That's fair. My something good is something that's happening (laughs) later. (laughs) In the future. That's okay. I'm tired. What about you? So... I was able to enjoy a belated Christmas present yesterday, and... Oh. From who? From Thomas. Okay. I got to treat myself to one of those, like, hair and head massage places, like, where you go and they, like, scrub your head and do, like, the hair mask and stuff. Massage thing? Yeah. How awesome was that? It was worth the large amount of money that was spent to do it. it and then I got like a fa- I got a facial too at the same time. Oh Ooh. my god. It was the most relaxing hour and a half of my life. That's amazing. And well deserved. You've had a rough you had a rough year last year. I'm glad yeah. you were able to start this year with something really nice. And like decadent yeah. decadent self-care. Yeah, I was like, this isn't something that I would do a lot, but definitely like twice a year would be nice. Like, just treat yourself. And I wouldn't have to go as balls to the wall as I did this last time. I could just do like, just the hair. But 
It felt really nice. Yeah, that's my good thing. That sounds really lovely. Like, I'm really glad that you were able to experience that. I would also really like to have decadent self-care. You should. I want to figure out when, if and when I could do something like that. I'll send you the information. Because you can do it for like 60 minutes and it's like just the hair part and it's fairly reasonable for what it is. Nice. All right. Shall we? We shall. A great way to support the show. If you want to help us out, but you can't do so financially, is to leave us a five-star rating and review on Apple Podcasts, Podchaser, Good Pods, Podcast Addict, or Audible. Looking for more content? You can find us online at yieldcrimepodcast.com. If you'd like to see pictures from this week's episode, not to mention bonus content and funny memes, make sure to follow us on Twitter at yieldcrimepod and on Facebook and Instagram at Yield Crime Podcast. On TikTok? Of course you are. Follow us at Yield Crime Podcast. There will be an end-of-the-month sale at our Public store January 25th through the 28th, where you can enjoy up to 35% off. Got something you want to say? Shoot us an email over at yieldcrimepodcast at gmail.com. We'd love to hear your story ideas, see any gifts you send our way, or if you just want to say hello. We're pretty friendly. Speaking of friendly, if you'd like to have real-time conversations with us, consider joining our Discord over at the Cultivate Network. You can chat with us over at the Old Crimers Cubby, or catch up with any of the other great creators that are part of the Cultivate family of podcasts. Just click the link in our show notes or over on our link tree to get started today. And on that note... As always, I'm Lindsay. And I'm Madison. And we'll see you next time with another tale as old as crime.